All right, Storehouse, will you please join me by standing for the reading of God's word. Today's reading is off of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and it reads, Paul, Sylvanius, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as it is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of uh, every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. The word of God for the people of God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good afternoon. Hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco and I serve as the preaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. In the event that you didn't catch Tony, we're gonna find ourselves in 2 Thessalonians. We just concluded the book of 1 Thessalonians and so today we're starting a new series. So we're gonna be in 2 Thessalonians chapter one. We're looking at verses one through four. And so as you open or load your Bibles, just one quick thing for you. If you are new, we would love to connect with you through prayer or through food. So please fill out a connect card uh, in the in the a foyer in the lobby, and uh, our staff team will get with you very promptly. Finally, if you don't have a Bible or if you know someone who would uh, benefit from having God's Word in their hand, please take one with you. That is our gift to you. Let's dig into our time, and here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to structure our time just a little different. I want to open up with prayer, and then we will dig into our text. So join me as I pray for our time as we examine the second letter to the Thessalonians this afternoon. Oh, Lord, simply, would you bless our time today with your grace? Lord, my prayer and my hope is that we would encounter your truth and that that, and through that, we would be both convicted and encouraged by your work for us and in us. And so we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'd like to begin our time with a question, and the question is this, what is it that you give yourself to that not only consumes your thoughts, but your language? We can say it a little differently. What consumes you so much that you brag about it? Bragging or boasting, and this is the word that we're gonna use, this is the word that we see in the text, and I might use them interchangeably, but bragging or boasting is really such an American thing. For instance, it was Muhammad Adli who once said, I'm not the greatest, I'm double the greatest. Not only do I knock them out, I pick the round. What consumes you that you brag about it? Is it your intelligence? Is it how good you are? Is it your anger? Is it your happiness? Is it your downcastness? Is it your success, your experiences, your hardship, your parenting? You name it, what is it that consumes you so much that you cannot help but brag about it? In his second letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul does some bragging of his own. He brags to other churches about the work of God in the Thessalonians. 
In his first letter that we examined over a number of weeks, he was so encouraged by the report he received from Timothy on how healthy they were doing that Paul went on to say that if Jesus appeared and returned suddenly, he'd run up to Jesus and he would brag to Jesus about his own work in the Thessalonians. And now, as we turn to this new letter, Paul is saying that he's so encouraged by their steadfastness in the middle of persecution that he has been boasting or bragging to other churches about God's work in the Thessalonians. Paul, in this introduction, is telling the Thessalonians, when I've visited or planted other churches, you know what I'm telling them about? I'm telling them about you and your steadfastness in the midst of persecution. Do you brag like that? All of us do it, so it's not like, well, I'm not really that much of a bragger. You are. Do you boast like that? Do you boast about what God is doing in your life or the life of others that it consumes you, that you can't help but talk to others about what God has done for you, in you, and in the life of others? And you're not doing so self-righteously. You're doing so because you're amazed at what God has done. What consumes you so much that your boasting either poisons your soul or brings praise to God's faithfulness. You see, depending on what we boast about reveals a great deal of our spiritual health because what we boast about, what you and I brag about, what we boast about reveals the character of what we believe. Boasting is this outward form of an inner condition. And so it is either one that is rooted in pride or it is one that is rooted in praise. And so as we consider the introduction to this letter, to give you a brief recap of the Thessalonians, if you're new, this is a church that the Apostle Paul and his team planted in the city of Thessalonica. Paul's team consists of himself, who was a former Jewish leader, and his ultimate goal and aim was to persecute the church of God. He put Christians in prison. He murdered Christians. And in addition to that, Jesus shows up and radically saves Paul. So that's one member of this team. The second member is an individual known as Silvanius, and he is a good friend to Paul and more than likely a courier. In other words, he was the one tasked with taking these letters to the Thessalonians. And then we have young Timothy. Young Timothy serves as like the ministry intern. And he has been with Paul. He has been discipled by Paul on various journeys. And eventually we learn that Timothy becomes a pastor. These are the men that planted the church in Thessalonica. And at one point were forced to flee the city because of an increase in persecution. In his first letter, Paul was worried, or I should say he, he shares with them that because they had to flee, he was so worried about the Thessalonians' faith that because of the persecution, were they sh shaken by that? Was their foundation rocked because of the persecution? Were they still following Jesus? And so Paul sends Timothy to find out how they're doing. And upon his return, Paul learns that the Thessalonians are not only still captivated by the 
the gospel, they're flourishing as a result of their faith. And so now he writes to them again, and by many accounts, this is only a couple of months after he wrote the first letter. He writes to them again, and though Paul is still pumped about their health, his tone, which is warm, warm and encouraging at times, it's also a little different than the first letter. You see, in the first letter, if we can summarize it very, very briefly, in the first letter, Paul was encouraging the Thessalonians through comfort in their newfound faith. Here in the second letter, Paul is now encouraging them with correction. And he is correcting them so that they would receive clarity about their doctrine. Because false doctrine had come into the church. So the Thessalonians are not only being persecuted, they're they're confused about what to believe. And so Paul is both correcting them and giving them clarity about doctrine. And so as we consider the first verse, it's no coincidence that Paul begins his letter to the Thessalonians similar to the way he uh, begins many of his letters by reminding them or by writing to them and reminding them that they are bound to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, we established who they are, to the church of the Thessalonians, here it is, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We can easily overlook the word in, but it is actually a matter of great significance because if Paul is going to write to them in order to encourage them, in order to correct their doctrine, he needs to first remind them of their union to God through Jesus. And that's the first thing that I want you to be encouraged by before we dig into application or what we need to do, because so often we're so well aware of, man, I'm just not doing things right. I need to do better. I need to learn how to do X, Y, and Z. Before we get to what to do, we need to look at who we are and who we belong to, because of that, we are most forgetful. And so God, through Paul, reminds you and I that before any work needs to be considered, our worth needs to be remembered. To be in God means that we are in union with him through the work of Jesus for us. That we have been adopted and made sons and daughters through faith. In short, We are bound to God through faith in Jesus. That is what Paul wants to remind the Thessalonians of. That is what I want you to be encouraged by this afternoon. Before we look at what to do, you are bound to God through Jesus' work done for you. Next, in verse 2, God reminds us that not only are we bound to him through Jesus, but that we are blessed by him because of Jesus. Consider verse 2, Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two words, grace and peace, are significant for us to consider, for us to take hold of, for us to remember, for us to embrace tightly. I want these first two verses and the entire book to be a source of encouragement for you 
just as much as Paul intends for it to be an encouragement to the Thessalonians. The Christian has been bound to God because of his blessing through grace. If you don't know what grace is, I'll summarize it very briefly. It is God's unmerited, undeserving favor to sinners. And if the question or the thought that comes after that is, why would God do that? The answer, in part, would be because it is his nature to be gracious. It is who he is. Grace is not only receiving what we do not deserve, it is his very nature. This grace from God has brought us peace with God. In other words, for the Christian, we are no longer strangers. We're no longer enemies. We are no longer at war with God because of Jesus's reconciling work for us. We are blessed by God because of Jesus's grace poured out to us. And now as we move to verses three to four, it's a result of being bound to God and being blessed by God that leads Paul to express gratitude to God and to boast about, God's, uh, to, boast about God to other churches. Consider verse three, he says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you. So because of who Jesus is and because of what he's done for the Thessalonians, Paul is saying we give him so much thanks for you. And because we give him so much thanks, you know what that has led us to do? Verse 4, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God. It's not because you're awesome or special, but because God's work in you has been incredible. We keep talking about his faithfulness and his work in you to the other brothers and sisters. That has what led Paul and his team to boast about God to other churches which leads us to the core of our time, and this is right in the center of verse three. Paul says, we ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. This is where we're gonna spend the majority of our time in this afternoon. Paul is ultimately saying these two things. Man, we're boasting to others about God's work for you, because we see these two distinguishing marks of health in you, not only as a church, but in you as individual Christians. And so what are those two distinguishing marks? A growing faith and increasing love. Here's what we need to know about faith and love. You ready? Faith and love do not make a healthy church or a healthy Christian. All Christians have faith, for instance. It is a growing faith and increasing love that makes a healthy Christian. Faith and love are not the same thing. They are distinct. They are two sides of the same coin. Therefore, let's examine each at length so we best understand how to grow in our faith and increase in our love. And so let's begin with faith. And the obvious question is, well, what is faith? I'm sure you could describe it one way. I'm gonna give you one definition. Here it is. What is faith? Faith is our dependence on God as a result of our union to Christ. Faith is our dependence upon God as a result of our union to Christ. Christ. 
Faith is the result of our justification with God. I want you to consider Galatians 2. Here's what Paul tells another group of Christians, a couple of other churches. Here's what he says. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Here's what Paul is saying. He's reminding them that they are justified by faith. The word justification, in short, means that they have been approved by God. You, Christian, are justified. In other words, you have been approved by God. And in this passage, Paul unpacks what it came about. In other words, you are approved by God, not because of your good works, not because of how awesome you think you are, not because of your consistency, not because of your intelligence or because how little you complain. You have been approved by God through faith in Jesus. And to be justified by faith alone means that we are sealed, secured, stamped, accepted by God. And so we, we, when we consider faith, faith is the result of our justification. Faith is the result of our acceptance by God. Further, we need to understand that faith composes of at least three parts. Faith composes of at least three parts, and we're getting a little nerdy today, and that's okay. Here's the first one. The first part, or the first component of faith is knowledge. You need to know one thing really quick, okay? You cannot have faith without knowledge, but knowledge alone is not faith. You cannot have faith without knowledge, but knowledge alone is not faith. So with that being said, to have knowledge means that we have some sort of source, information, and facts about God. Something that has been made known to us. Something that usually sits in our bookshelves, right? That has been made known to us. A source, information, and facts. That's knowledge. The second part of faith is what we call agreement. Meaning... Not only do we have facts, not only do we have information, but we agree that this information about God is true. Not simply helpful, not simply illuminating, not simply inspirational, but true. Does this mean you're gonna know everything right now and right away? No. But at the minimum, there's agreement. You must also understand that knowledge and agreement are still not faith. Because even Satan and the demons have knowledge about God and they agree that that knowledge is true. So it is not alone, it is not enough for these two to amount to faith. There must be a third component. And that leads us to the last one. Trust, you can call it surrender. This is active reliance upon Jesus, both in our salvation 
and in our walk with him. This is follow through with what we say we believe about Jesus, even when we can't fully comprehend all of it. These three, knowledge, agreement, and trust, remind us that faith is not blind. Faith is not a leap into the unknown. And just because you cannot fully understand something right now doesn't make whatever's on the other side an abyss. It just means it hasn't been made known to you yet. So no te hagas. Okay? It is not blind and it is not a leap into the unknown. And so now that we have this understanding of faith, it consists of knowledge, agreement, and and trust. Now that we have this better understanding of faith, what is it that Paul tells the Thessalonians about? Let's look at it one more time. Because your faith is growing abundantly. Does Paul say, we've been thanking God because, man, I'm just so glad you have some faith. Cool, sweet, awesome. I'm going to send you a letter next time, deuces, right? No, he doesn't say that. Paul says, I'm thanking God because of your growing faith. The word growing is a word used by Paul to provide the imagery of a healthy tree, one that is growing in strength, in capacity, and maturity, You know, if you consider the the, the storms, the showers that we've had over the last couple of days or the last couple of weeks, like in our yard, we have a lot of trees. And so you see them get greener, you see them get a little bit stronger, you see them get a little bit taller, and you're just like, man, that's so awesome. Why? It's because they are saturated with water. They're growing in health and maturity and capacity. It's, It's like what the psalmist says in Psalm 1, He goes on to say, his delight, the the righteous one, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here it is. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. And so in this little section, it's not mere faith that makes the Thessalonians healthy and and, and that's what's pumping Paul up. It's a growing faith. In other words, this faith is not stagnant. It's not idle. It's not stale. It's growing. Our faith must be growing so that our roots would grow deeper, our maturity would be made evident, and our capacity would increase. And so it's at this moment where I want to pause for just a second. There are some of you where your faith is growing abundantly. It's growing through challenge, it's growing through community, it's growing through conviction and change in your life, and praise God for that. And then there are some of you who are what Spurgeon calls, and if you don't know who Spurgeon is, don't worry about it. He's cool. I like him anyway. There are some of you whose faith, to use his language, is little faith. I want to tell you a little bit about little faith. Those of little faith are the ones who believe that their faith is so infantile. 
They're the ones who think that their faith is so small, it's so weak, it's meaningless, that it could never, ever, cannot ever be pleasing enough to God. Let me encourage you and caution you for a moment, if this is you. Little faith matters greatly to the Lord Jesus. Little faith will save the sinner as long as it is true faith. Spurgeon goes on to say this. When Christ counts up his jewels at the last day, he will take to himself the little pearls as well as the great ones. Christ will never lose even the smallest jewel of his crown. Little faith was bought with the blood of Christ, and he cost as much as great faith. Your faith matters. It was you were purchased, your sin was purchased by God so that you would be bound to him, whether you have great faith or you have a little faith. And that's the encouragement. Now let me caution you. You need to be cautioned of a few things. For instance, those with little faith often do not notice the fruit of the gospel in their life. I got a question. Could it be that part of the reason you see very little fruit of the gospel in your life is because you seldom attempt to do things for God? Could it be that the reason the lens that you wear are constantly foggy as a result of you rarely doing anything for the Lord. If you are of little faith, sometimes you're easily discouraged. And Paul talks about individuals like that. We looked at that last week, that there are some who are little-souled, discouraged easily, and that we as the church need to come around them to encourage them. But let me ask you this. Are you so easily discouraged because you so easily give in to sin when tempted? Those of little faith walk with Jesus in fear. And it's not the kind of reverent fear that we talk about like in Proverbs. The kind of fear that those with little faith walk in is, is condemnation. I've really done it now. He's just gonna press the eject button and this was, this was it. Let me remind you. Those who are in Christ Jesus, there is now no condemnation for you. You do not have to walk in fear. Your faith matters. But I would caution, exhort, push you a little bit 
to consider those questions. Could it be that the reason you see very little fruit in your life is because you seldom attempt to do anything for God? Could it be that many of the times you find yourself discouraged is because you give in to temptation of sin? Could it be that sometimes you are walking with the Lord in faith, or excuse me, in fear, and you quickly forget that there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and you think that is true for others, but not for me. Your faith matters to the Redeemer. He has purchased you. And so for everyone, now we'll transition for for everyone, whether you are of little faith or great faith. If you're of great faith, keep going. If you are of little faith, you can't stay there. I don't want you to stay there. It is not good for you to stay there. Therefore, we need to feed our faith so that we would draw near to Jesus in dependence because of our union to him as theologians, because whether you like it or not, you're a theologian. It's just whether or not you're a good one, you're a theologian, right? And at the same time, so that we would mature as Christians, we must feed our faith. And I'm going to give you three things. It's not things, if you want to take notes on this, cool, but it's not things that you're not like unaware of. They're not super amazing. Here's the first one. Devotion to the word of God in prayer. Devotion to the word of God in prayer. Faithfully consistent. Faithfully showing up. See, oftentimes I'll talk with many Christians and it's like, hey, how's prayer and and how's your time in the word? And it's not as good as it should be. It's not as regular as it needs to be. Or at the same time, or if it's not that, it's the other one. Man, I just need God to share something with me. I just need clarity on this. I just need to do these things. Here's where I would challenge you. And this is the words of Jesus, John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and that it is they that bear witness about me. So he's saying, hey, you're turning to the scriptures. Good job. Awesome. Great. I love that. But you're looking for something else. You're not looking for me when you turn to the scriptures. And check it. A lot of the times we'll stop there. But look at what he continues to say. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The key phrase that really hit me there this week is, yet you, making it personal, you refuse to come to me. You're searching the scriptures, you got your Bible time, you got your app on your phone, you made your coffee, you're at your desk reading your word, but yet you refuse to come to me. We want to grow in our faith. We must be devoted to the word of God in prayer because we seek the Savior. Secondly, it's the Sunday gathering. I'm going to be honest about a couple of things, right? Number one, when it comes to the Sunday gathering, it is not the only gathering for the Christian, but it is the most important gathering for the Christian because here we are shaped and formed by grace. Through songs and scripture reading and the preached word and the sacraments, here is where we are refreshed to go back out there. And can we just be honest about something? I'm not big on rants. I get it. The four o'clock is a challenge, right? Everybody's smiling because you know it's true, right? Then you should have said something six months ago. Anyway, with that being said, (laughs) but here we are. This is the season that we find ourselves in. 
And if we're all in agreement with the first part of this statement, that the Sunday gathering is when we are formed and shaped by habits of grace, but it's in an inconvenient time, what does that then say about the weakness or dullness of our faith? So you can chew on that at community group. All right, the next one is community. And let me tell you one thing about this. Y'all do this really, really well. You guys are awesome at being around one another. And so this is a quick encouragement from Hebrews. Here's what the writer says. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you any, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another every day as long as it is called what? Today. Not when it's convenient, not when it's on your radar schedule, not when you've sorted through your agenda today. Check it out that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here's the only thing I'll say about community because y'all do this really, really well. What I've learned as we've been talking to our community group leaders over the last couple of weeks, many people, if not all of those who are involved in community group are aware of everyone else's season. The question is whether or not we're actually encouraging one another while we're in those seasons. This is really, really, really uh, American Christianity kind of a thing. We assume that someone is gonna be checking in on everyone else. When I would train with uh, like first responders and we would talk about one of the things you do after you assess a situation is you would assign someone to go call 911. Like if you arrived on the scene first, And one of the things that we would push them to make sure that they did was if there was an emergency in a big crowd that you wouldn't just yell, somebody call call 911. And the reason you don't do that is because everyone is going to assume that someone else is going to call 911. And so what you had to do was point to the individual and say, I need you to go call 911. And so how that transitions into the churches, oftentimes we assume that everyone else is being taken care of because we're in community with one another or because we are aware, but there's actually very little encouragement. Who do you need to encourage today, right? And finally, here's the caution for all of us. Here's the, that's how you feed your faith, the word and prayer, the gathering, Community, here's, here's the caution. We grow in our faith so that we would draw near to Jesus, not so that he would owe you. Let me say that one more time. We grow in our faith so that we would draw near to Jesus, not so that he would owe us. And that's one of the big concerns for the church. It is, I've done this, I've done that, I didn't do these bad things, I did all of these good things, you therefore owe me. And all of us fall into that trap at one point or another. Here's one thing that that some of us have been wrestling with this week. Check it out. You ready? It is the Christian who does not get what they want because it is only the Christian who dies to self daily as a result of a love for Christ. Christ is better. 
And so the first distinguishing mark of health in a church or in a Christian is a growing faith. The second distinguishing mark of a healthy Christian is increasing love. Here we go. The word for increasing here refers to a flood irrigating the land, right? It's wide distribution. So again, think about the storms that we had over the weekend. There were some parts of the valley that got a lot more rain. And so it saturates the ground and it spreads out. And so that's what he's talking about when he refers to an increasing love. And Paul is placing a specific focus on on one another. He's placing a focus on the church. Not that we shouldn't love others. It's just that we're not talking about that yet. Here, Paul is placing an emphasis on the church because in order to be healthy, we need to be able to examine ourselves, not selfishly or insulated, but in community and with accountability. And so why does an increasing love matter? Because love is the key metric between a self-serving congregation and a congregation of grace. See, it takes far more work and grace and self-denial to form a community of grace than it does a club. Some of you think the church is a club. No, 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 no. A club is one that you start on your own, you set or manipulate the rules, and you allow certain people in. We don't choose who comes in. We guard it, we protect it, but a church takes far more work than a club To the Thessalonians in the first letter, Paul says, we thank God for your labor of love. That's a great way of like defining how do you cultivate love or how do you cultivate increasing love? Man, it's a labor. Why? Because there's going to be people you don't always like. And the Lord is going to call you to go talk to them. And you're going to be sanctified in that more than they probably will be. (laughs) Cash, numerical growth, buildings, those are cool, I guess, but uh, those aren't the distinguishing marks of a healthy church or of a healthy Christian. It is growing faith and increasing in love. One commentator goes on to say, when love for one another begins to diminish, friction increases and churches fall apart. I would add, churches die. Anyone can form a club, but it is only by grace that a community can be shaped. And so how can you know that you have love for one another? How can you know that love really is this metric, right? Uh, there's this test. You could visit it online. It was, it was credited to Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts cartoons, right? But it's not him. But here's, here's, what the test, here's what the test would say, right? How do you know? How do you know if you love one another? Or how do you know if, if love is actually increasing? All right, y'all ready? Here it is. Don't write this down. Just don't worry about it, right? Here it is. All right, name five of the wealthiest people in the world. Name the last five winners of the Heisman Trophy of Miss Americas and the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize. Name the last six Academy Award winners and name the teams that won the World Series in baseball over the last 10 years. I could do like one, right? The contrast of that is this. Name a few teachers that have influenced you. Name three friends that have been there for you. Name five people that taught you something worthwhile. Name five people 
who encourage you. Here's the point of this funny test. It's not the ones with the credentials. It's not the ones with the most money or notoriety, but the ones that have expressed care through love and grace. And if you can't name any of them, then you need to get in the game. And you're like, oh man, the church is full of hypocrites. All right, you're, then, then you meet the first qualification. All right, let's go. <laughs> love is not commercialized. Love is not consumeristic. Love is not only an emotion, it is devotion. The Apostle John says this, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That's a really strong word. That's a really strong word from John. Here's what it ultimately is saying. He's saying, love comes from God because God is love and God pours out his love to us through Jesus. Therefore, if our love for God and one another is disordered, it's because we're trying to define love outside of God. Then that would make sense why the church often wants to be friends with the world. The world does not have the love of God, so then why are we trying to introduce it into the church? And if we're refusing to address things with one another, how is that actually loving one another, whether it's to encourage one another or to rebuke one another. When we refuse to increase in love toward one another, it doesn't simply have an effect on the church. It's the result of you and I stiff-arming God first. We just want to blame it on people. Paul writes all of this that they're growing in faith, they're increasing in love. He writes about all of this because he's pumped about God's work in them. He's so pumped, he's telling other churches about them. But he's telling them about them not just in ordinary circumstances, but in the middle of persecution, in the middle uh, of real persecution. He says, you're steadfast in persecution. The word steadfast means to be under pressure for an extended period of time. And he says, they're remaining steadfast in the middle of real persecution. The reason I keep stressing real is because according to, not according to, I want to show you, you're not going to see this on the screen, what real persecution is. According to an article posted in January of 2022 by Dr. Yulina Okab, here's what she writes about the top three countries in the world where persecution is real. This is real time, okay? Country number one is Afghanistan. She goes on to say, those, speaking of Christians, those whose names are known to the Taliban are being hunted down. If men are discovered to have a Christian faith, they are executed. If women are discovered, they may escape execution but face a life of slavery or imprisonment. That's Afghanistan. That was number one on the list. Number two on the list is North Korea. If Christians are discovered, they and their families are deported to labor camps as political criminals or killed on the spot. Gathering with other Christians is therefore almost impossible and must only be attempted in utmost secrecy. Some reports go on to say that right now, real time in North Korea, they'll collect and gather Christians and burn them at the stake. Country number three, Somalia. Even being suspected of being a convert to Christianity means life-threatening danger. 
anyone found in possession of a Bible or other printed Christian material is executed, check it, executed with the blessing of their relatives and community. Here's the point. You and I are not being persecuted. So let's stop throwing that word around as Christians. Now that doesn't mean that we haven't experienced hardship or sorrow. It doesn't mean that we haven't been mocked. It doesn't mean that we haven't been shamed. It doesn't mean that we haven't been rejected by friends or family. All of that stinks. It matters to God because it's difficult, it's discouraging, it's defeating, but we're really not being persecuted. No one's going to hang you or burn you at the stake right now. In fact, we're gathering publicly. In addition to that, if we can look to the brothers and sisters around the globe who are experiencing persecution, I want you to walk away with one thing as they experience hardship. Their hardship, their persecution reveals their faith. That's what persecution is meant to do. It's going to reveal your faith. Paul is saying you have a growing faith. You are increasing in love because you're steadfast in persecution. We have no reason not to grow in our faith or in our love. We have been bound to God, blessed by God, and have all the reason to boast about God. When the storm hits, whether it's just something inconvenient or something difficult, when the storm hits, do you remain steadfast or shaken? See, our faith is not contingent upon our strength, but our Savior. And so what keeps you from growing in faith and increasing in love? Pastoral assessment, this is what I think keeps us from doing that. What keeps us from doing that, frankly, is our idolatry. It's our self-righteousness, it's our pride, it's our bitterness, it's our idleness. All of these keep us from doing so. And all of these we are known, we know and sometimes embrace and we clean it up with, I'm just struggling with, rather than repenting. We're so concerned with what we think God owes us because we think we're so special. No, what's really happening is that your faith is being revealed. We boast about God because of his work done for us through faith and love, therefore we grow in our faith and we increase in our love for one another. Listen, I don't want to be a church marked by idolatry or isolation just because we didn't get something that we wanted. And that's the reason why our faith is decreasing and our love for one another is contractual. We are not like the world. We are not of the world. But we are in the world. Therefore, if we are to remain steadfast, then let us return to Jesus. Let us remember our blessings from Jesus. And let us grow healthy together. So that we would grow in our faith. So that we would mature in holiness. So that we would love one another. Listen, it is not the strength of your faith that ultimately matters. It is Jesus Christ in him alone that ultimately matters. If you know him and seek him, him. If you know Jesus and seek Jesus, then your faith will grow and your love for one another will be more evident. If, you want, if you're asking, man, how is my faith doing? And sometimes you get asked that question, right? Focus on the Savior. 
Focus on the Savior. He is what brings life to your faith. And this is what leads you to rejoice in his work in your life and in the life of others. We are bound to God because of his work for us on the cross through Jesus, who took our sin, guilt, and shame, died on a cross where the work by which we are reconciled to God has been completed. He was buried and resurrected three days later, and what he left in the grave was our sin and death. We are bound to God because of Christ. We are blessed by God because of Christ. And we boast about God because of Christ. So keep going. If you're growing in your faith, keep going. God isn't done with you. Draw near to him so that you would grow in faith and increase in love. And so here's where we'll close. Christian, what truths are you forgetting? What do you boast about the most? If boasting reveals the character about what you believe, what is it that you're bragging about the most? What do you boast about the most? What has consumed you? There is no sin in your life, Christian, that has not gone unforgiven. You are totally forgiven. The question is whether or not you have unconfessed sin. That's the difference. You are bound to Christ, so turn to him in faith and repentance. And if you're not a Christian, thanks for being here. Got to tell you, you are not bound to Christ, but the world. Your heart is hardened toward God, and you are in love with your sin. You're not spiritually unhealthy. You're spiritually dead in your sin. And everyone starts off this way. You, just like us, need to be rescued. And this bondage that you have cannot be broken by you. It must be broken by one that is greater than your sin, and his name is Jesus. Therefore, let me invite you to repent of your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus through faith. Church, last time, what we boast about reveals the character of what we believe. Let's pray. Father, we ask Father, we ask that you would continue to convict us wherever that might be in our life right now. Father, we pray that we would address or I pray that we would address the sins in our life, that we would turn to Jesus in repentance and that we would walk faithfully. God, I pray that you would comfort those of little faith you would give them encouragement and grace, but that you would also empower them by by your spirit to move forward, to grow. God, I pray that you would unite all of us around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, God, as we continue to examine our hearts, as we prepare ourselves for communion, Lord, may we Give us the strength to confess our sins. Give us the boldness to confess our sins. Give us the the courage to, to confess where we're weak so that as we turn to you and have this meal together, we are reminded of your grace for us. 
we are reminded that we are bound to you because of Jesus' work for us, that we are blessed by you because of Jesus' grace to us and peace for us. Oh, Lord, may we be shaped by this grace this afternoon. May we be shaped by your word, by your work. May we be shaped by you.